Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that scientists just figured out why some people from Southeast Asia, known as the Bujiao, may have superpowers. This unusual group of people can hold their breath for as long as 13 minutes, and they spend about five hours a day in the water and are sometimes known as sea nomads. And scientists now believe that they can do this because they have really large spleens, and this is probably a genetic variation that came about. And this is interesting because on Bulletproof Radio, I'm always looking for ways to figure out how people do things that are supposed to be impossible. And sometimes it's genetic and sometimes it's epigenetic, which means that your environment reprograms your DNA. In this case, it's probably a combination of both. Scientists believe this is the mechanism for this because certain seal species also have really large spleens, which is kind of cool because spleens can bring a larger supply of oxygenated red blood cells. What does that mean for you and me if we don't have really large spleens? I have no idea. But figuring out how humans do cool things is awesome. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. This episode of Bulletproof Radio is one of the most powerful and most amazing interviews I've ever had the honor of conducting. And we go to some places that are graphic and real. And this is the sort of stuff that teaches me and teaches all of us about human resilience, but it's not the kind of stuff that you probably want to listen to with young kids. Today's guest is Laura Logan, and she's a woman who almost doesn't need an introduction because for about 30 years now, she's been a journalist, a war correspondent, and she's been part of the CBS network since 2001. And she's well known for just daring reporting and coverage of huge numbers of significant world events and has interviewed leaders around the world for this little show called 60 Minutes. <laughs> and I met her uh, in person in Miami at a conference where I was due to be on stage. And she was uh, finishing her talk. And it was really funny because it was like time for me to come on stage. And she's one of those sort of take no prisoners personalities. She's like, I'm not done. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I'm supposed to be up here. So we had this kind of cool on stage uh, little debate. And she just so effortlessly handled uh, handled me going, no, no, I, I got to get up here now. And so it was, it was just funny. We got to know each other uh, a little bit. And I said, hey, I want to interview her because her life is one of the most fascinating, courageous lives I could think of. And... I probably didn't give her justice so far because we're talking about her work on 60 Minutes, about taking back Mosul from ISIS. She's interviewed people on the ground in the Ebola crisis. She interviewed Jack Ma, who's the founder of Alibaba, who's almost impossible to get on camera. And I could go on for 10 more minutes of these like epic world events where she didn't just interview people. She was on the ground, like in vehicles that were blown up and stuff like that. So, so Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dave. And by the way, you know, I was trying to think when I was last in Miami, I'm pretty sure we met in Vegas. 
Uh, you know what? I was at two conferences the same week. You are correct. This was in Vegas, and I went from Vegas to Miami, and I confused my conferences. So, But I wish it had been in Miami because I'm a big fan of the beach. I can tell you the beach in Miami was better than the beach in Vegas, but that always is true. So, All right, Laura, this is so exciting to get to interview you because I want to know, what made you decide to go to all of these places of just war-torn conflict and, and the most dangerous places on earth, really, and to just put your put yourself on the line to tell the news? Like, like what's going on to make you do this? You know, I don't. I, I think it would be like it would be wrong to say that I ever made a decision or decided because all I can ever remember is wanting with every part of my body to be there. There's um, there's, there's a, a gene that all of us in uh, news in, in this particular part of journalism that I think all of us share to differing degrees. I will say there's a core of us and it's probably not our time anymore we're all getting older but there's a there's something that just drives you it's like it's like a homing beacon you know this is where you're meant to be you know this is where you want to be and if you're lucky enough will matter to other people and so I don't really question it I say to people sometimes because I get asked this all the time like do you ask a chair why it's a chair But that's about the only way that I can describe what it's like for me trying to answer that question. I'm a chair, for God's sake, okay? That's what I was made to be. I'm never going to be a table. Don't ask me to grow up and become a sofa because I'm just a chair. And that's pretty much how I feel. I was always drawn to the impossible, you know, and trying and, and overcoming that. I never like to take no for an answer. And everybody wants to say no to you when you're, you know, a young girl with big boobs and long hair that um, that is like I am. They want to say, no, you can't go into the townships in South Africa. No, you can't go to the front line in Angola. No, you can't go and report for the American networks. They don't put non-Americans on air, that kind of thing. So it's a combination of knowing that this is what you're born to do and uh, not being prepared to take no for an answer because not because I'm just some, you know, kind of uh, obstructive pain in the ass, although some might say I am that too, <laughs> but just because I really believe that this is something I can do and I can do it well and I was meant to do it. And if you don't let me do it, then I'm wasting my time on earth. Like that's that's how I've always felt. A guy named uh, Terry Grossman studied veterans of combat, like special forces people, and and wrote a a seminal book called On Combat. And he identified that there's some people who are wired when there's an explosion or or a disaster, they're wired to run towards it instead of run away from it. And that they're just unusual people. And and it's just in them. And those are the people who become our warriors. Are you one of those people? Yes. It's funny that you should say that because I remember a bomb going off in South Africa, not far from where I was. I was a young teenager on the beachfront, I grew up on the east coast of Africa in a place called Durban in South Africa. And um, a man called Robert McBride blew up a bar that I used to go to a lot. And I remember when that first bomb went off, calling my mother, I think I, I was about maybe 15. I could, and in South Africa, you had to be 18 to drive, right? So I couldn't get myself out of there. And I remember calling my mother and saying, 
mom, there's been a bomb and there'll probably be another one. You need to come and get me. And those were the days when the ANC had its armed rebellion against the South African government. And they knew how to time their bombs so that they would get all the you know people running towards the scene afterwards. So it's funny that I became one of those people who would always run to the bomb. Um, and I did, I have often thought about that moment over my life. You know, there was a bomb that went off once when they blew up um, our building in Baghdad where I was living. And I lived there for five years and we were in a hotel. And um, one morning, you know, I, I, I often used to work till five, six, seven in the morning, even later. And then I would catch a few hours sleep. And that day I woke up at 10, 10, 30, 11. My alarm kept going off and I kept thinking, God, I just can't do it today. And I eventually woke up, swung my legs out of the bed, put them on the floor. And I was sort of sitting there thinking, I got to get up and boom, you know, it just blew up underneath me. And uh, I stopped in the bathroom on my way out the door to put my mascara on because although I was in my pajamas, I really didn't want to be on television without eyelashes. So, um, so I went running and I remember our security at CBS News looked at me and they were like, you have to be kidding me, right? You have to be kidding me. This like the, the bottom three floors had just exploded and blown up underneath us. And all our security wanted to do was lock us all down. And all we needed to do was to run down there. And that's one of those trade-offs in this job that is so hard because you don't want to be, you know, the asshole that's not listening to the smart people. And you don't want to, um, you don't want to miss the whole story. And you have to find that, that even ground in between, which let me tell you, is hard to find. And it's fine when you're some big, burly man war correspondent that everyone respects, right? But even when you, me, and you've been doing it a long, long time, you still have to fight the, oh, you know, the little girl doesn't know what she's doing kind of thing. So I, that didn't answer your question about why, but I will say, yes, there's probably, there is probably something in our DNA that we do share with people like that. So you've got some of that, that warrior setting that just makes you do that. I go calm when these things. You go calm. Yeah. Adrenaline is going for sure, but I think very clearly. You know, I'm not one of those people that panics. Mostly I'm thinking, how do I get out of the way? Because I know that I, I need to do my job, but I also need to get out of the way other people who can actually keep me alive. Have you found times in your career where that, that vibe that you have or just that impulse veered over the line to become basically reckless in retrospect? No. I mean, look, your idea of reckless, my idea of reckless <laughs> can be very different things. But, you know, actually, this is this is something that I don't get asked very often. And I'm really glad that you asked me this question because I have turned down and walked away from so many opportunities in my career where I could have done things that maybe would have made me famous, maybe got me killed, certainly would have been things that uh, if I'd survived would have made my career, you know, take off exponentially on a, in a, on a nuclear scale, right? And I walked away from them because they were reckless. And probably, <laughs> I'm probably more than a little bit resentful of the fact that I've been accused of being reckless and I've been branded as reckless and I've been, you know, people have tried to smear me 
as being reckless. And the people who've worked with me, who've been on the battlefield with me, and sometimes there haven't been any people because I've been alone, but my colleagues who've also been walking that path, you know, colleagues from other journalistic organizations, they know that I've never been reckless because um, number one, I'm not ego driven and I never have been. So I'm always thinking about what's the smart play here. I'll give you an example, okay? So I'm not just full of you know what. Um, when I was living with Afghan soldiers on the front line in Afghanistan, the Taliban controlled 90, 95% of Afghanistan at the time. No one was stupid enough to live with the Afghan soldiers, you know, just by looking to my left and my right, right? I mean, there were only a handful of us. In fact, the only one near me was Steve Harrigan from Fox News. And um, at that time, I was a woman on my own. Women were not seen on the streets of Afghanistan, ever, without their faces covered. There were very few that ventured outside at all, and those who did were covered in burqas. And I was living with General Babajan and his men, and many times in the night, Taliban commanders, very senior commanders, would come from the battlefield or they'd come from Kabul to negotiate with him. And I would sit with them, and they would get me very drunk. <laughs> I didn't drink at all, and I had to drink because they would always make me drink first. And we would we would talk through the night. I had no idea what they were saying because they only spake, spoke uh, Pashtun most of the time, and I didn't speak any Pashtun. But they would ask me. General Babajan spoke a few words of English, and he and my bodyguard, who was assigned to me, spoke a few words. They would ask me, come, go with them to Kabul, you know, go with them. They would take me into Kabul if I wanted. And at that time, I would have been the most famous journalist in the world, certainly in America. Only Raggy Omar from the BBC was in Kabul, nobody else. And I would have been the only woman, it would have been off the charts for my career. And I never did it because I, could, I, I knew that there was no way on earth I could guarantee my safety. Once I got in a car, with those Taliban commanders and nobody speaking any English. And I was assured by the general who was keeping me safe, by the way, I survived that war because of that general and because of the men he put around me. And they all promised me, it'll be fine. Go with them, sister. They made out, you know, you pretend to be his sister. It'll be okay. I could have had every headline. I could have been on everyone's screen. I could have been burned into everyone's memory. And I could have written, you know, my career in my check in my check when I got back. And I didn't do it because I'm not reckless. And I repeated that kind of decision time and time and time again. Would other people consider it completely reckless and insane that I was living with Afghan soldiers and that I was on the front line in Afghanistan in the first place? Yes, but I have hundreds of colleagues who've done that kind of thing. And if you look at it, your track record around the world, if you're reckless, uh, you'd probably be dead. <laughs> so at this point in your career, you can look back and say, do I look reckless? <laughs> Don't forget lucky. Don't forget lucky, Dave, because I can sit here and tell you I'm the smartest, most, you know, I'm so experienced and I know what I'm doing out there. And that's why I'm alive, Dave, because I'm so good at this. And you know what? If you're not lucky, have you ever heard the phrase uh, shit out of luck? Can yeah. you swear on the podcast? Sure, you can swear on the podcast. Okay. So if you're shit out of luck, you know, you're just shit out of luck. And it doesn't matter how smart you are. Yeah. Although one of the best people in the world I've ever worked with in my life, Richard Butler, who's a cameraman and a producer and a, a great journalist, 
And I said to him uh, once, well, you know, I said, Rachel, it's like, yeah, it helps us having, you know, experience. This was on our last trip to Afghanistan. I said, but, you know, it doesn't hurt to be lucky. And he looked at me in his way and he said, you know, Lara, what I found is the smarter I am, the luckier I get. So you make your own luck. Do you believe in luck? I mean, as, as an existence, do you make your own luck or is luck something that just happens to you? I think it's both. I think that you do make your own luck to a degree. Of course, if you, you know, you make some really bad decisions, your chances of being unlucky increase exponentially, right? Certain situations, I'm just not going to put myself in. Am I going to walk in downtown Johannesburg, South Africa, you know, on my own without a cell phone, no clear idea of where I'm going to go? No, because I'm increasing my chances of being unlucky, right? By doing that. So, of course, being smart factors into it. And, and yet sometimes, no matter how smart you are, no matter how careful you were and how much preparation you did and how many contingencies you put in place, sometimes when that mortar hits, it's going to hit the spot where you were standing. And some days, it's going to hit that spot and the round's not going to go off. I've interviewed a good number of Navy SEALs and other people in, in extreme environments and and a very substantial number of them talk about knowing in their gut not to go somewhere or some of them you have having feeling an energy or you know helping things do you feel like you had something in your gut or something outside of you that was helping you know where to go and where not to go or is it all cognitive no without a doubt you have that sometimes look i have no feeling whatsoever because i don't even understand what's going on around me because i don't speak the language and i hate that um, but that's when you rely on the really great people that you work with, you know, and your gut tells you whether that's a good decision or not. So your gut's still playing a role, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I think without question, it's not just cognitive. You know, I'm always careful about uh, saying things that appear to give up responsibility, right? Right. You know, I always, I, I never forget the fact that at the end of the day, I'm always responsible for the decisions that I make. And I think you call it gut. Another word for it is intuition. Yeah. Right? Another word for it is just um, that sort of that second sense. That's something that you feel or don't feel and, and can't even articulate. So that's definitely part of it. Although sometimes, you know, you're not really identifying what you necessarily identifying what you feel with the right words, right? Because um, sometimes you can be just terrified out of your mind. <laughs> you can want to pass that off as, well, you know, I'm not feeling this one, boys. I think we should go back. And, and that's not intuition. That's just good old fashioned fear. Yes. And fear is a very interesting one for me because people often say to me, you're fearless. And you know, of course, that's not true. I mean, I never felt more fear than when I was lying naked in a square in Egypt being gang raped, right? And and dying. That's uh, the true, the truest meaning of fear that I've ever experienced. But I will say that since I've had children, and now I have to think about other people than myself in a in a way that is really important to me. And not that it's you know, that I, oh, I didn't care about my mother or my sister or my father. You know, it wasn't that. It's just that I have such a responsibility to these children to be there for them when they need me. So that's a different kind of fear. 
And now, you know, I'm responsible for the rest of my team. And now I'm the person that's whose name is known and I could potentially be a target. Am I dragging people into a situation where um, I have no right to do that, you know? And also now that I've been targeted and people have tried to discredit me by saying that I'm reckless, now do I have an extra burden on me? So fear of those things is much more real for me than fear of some of these, you know, some of the other more obvious things like, you know, having your head chopped off on camera by Al-Qaeda. So fear of, of the, the damage to your reputation and your work is, is almost as big as the fear of death. Am I getting that right? No. Okay. I never fear damaging my reputation. I never fear damaging my okay. work because I have absolute certainty, like really, that um, everything I am doing, I am doing 100% without, without any wiggle room whatsoever. You know, I was, uh, I've been accused of many things in my career, <laughs> in my work, especially around the Benghazi story. Yeah. And none of it was true. Absolutely none of it was true. I did not go into something with, um, with an agenda or um, with anything other than an open heart and an open mind. And that doesn't mean I haven't made mistakes. I'm not saying that. I've certainly made mistakes. But I don't fear my reputation. I don't fear my work because my process has been the same from the beginning of time. It's like breathing for me. But I do fear having other people hurt. Ah, okay. That's what I fear. I fear letting down the people I love. I fear letting down the people that I'm responsible to and responsible for. I fear not making the right decisions for their for the right reasons. Do you know what I mean? Because it's your fear of harming others with your decisions is is the big thing you're looking to avoid. Yes, and now there's an now there is an un I wouldn't say unfair burden because life is unfair, right? So that's the way it goes. Um, yes, it's unfair, but it's not even it doesn't even merit mentioning that. Right. I have more. There is a more sinister burden on me now. Because people want, who want to take you down and take you out for, for all the wrong reasons have a degree of influence over your decision making that um, they really don't deserve, to be honest with you, because that shouldn't factor into it. I mean, when, when myself and my colleagues and my team at 60 and the guys I work with and when we go out and we're all giving up things and we're all making sacrifices and we're all, we're, we're all there because we believe in what we're doing, I mean... Our first duty and responsibility is uh, to each other, you know, that we always treat each other with respect and we always create an environment where where each of us has the ability to be a whole person and a whole and a whole person in that task. So uh, I don't work on the people I walk all over them and they don't walk all over me. It's a mutual thing, you know, and when you're in a life threatening situation like that, you know what, in any situation. You owe your colleagues and the people around you that, right? right? You owe it all the time. If you have integrity, that, that's how you see the world. And, and you have integrity, it seems like, in your life and in your journalism in particular, which is yes. why you, you separate those things. Oh, they're, they're very separate. Absolutely. No, I don't separate them. Oh, you don't? Oh, interesting. Explain that. I don't believe that you can be the, say, I'm a good person. I don't screw people over. I'm very honest. And then, then in your work, Go out and, you know, screw over anybody you like. Oh, this person deserves it. Look what they did, right? 
oh, they should know better. Well, they're talking to a journalist, you know, yeah. they know what they're getting themselves in for. I'm not one of those guys, right? It's not worth that to me. I'm gonna, if someone says something to me that I think, oh my God, did they just say that? <laughs> Very often I will say to them, let me just clarify, or just so I'm clear. So what you're saying, you're, you're saying this, I always give them an opportunity to reflect. I don't need that. I'm not a cheap shot person, okay? And if, and if I wanna talk to you about something that's sensitive, I may not make that the headline of my request. Oh here, I wanna talk to you about the most controversial, embarrassing, you know, shameful thing in your life, or you know, potentially damaging thing you've ever been involved in. No, I'm not gonna headline with that. But I'm not going to back away from it, and I'm not going to lie about it. And right. and if that means I don't get the interview, or I pa- they pass on the story, or whatever, you know what? I'm really okay with that because in the end, um, in the end, I have to be certain that I'm able to live with myself and that I lived up to who I am. I'm one of those people. I'm consistent. Okay, if I'm an asshole in the morning, I'm still an asshole that night, <laughs> and the next day, and the next month, and the next year. That doesn't mean you don't grow and change and try to be a better person. I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying I'm this fixed entity and I'm, you know, what I am no matter what. I just mean that to me, consistency is everything. You can't say I'm this kind of person and then pick and choose when you're going to be that kind of person. It's how you show up in the world and the world encompasses your work for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that perspective and all of the most admirable people I know have that, that integrity and everything. It's not optional for one thing versus another. Okay. Let's talk about your decision. And for people who are listening, who either have forgotten or or just don't know about it, um, you did uh, a report uh, that it turns out in retrospect, uh, this is the Benghazi thing um, that was it was inaccurate, but not, not not because you were trying for it to be. And you made a decision to do an on-air apology and say, "Hey, like I got this one wrong." Can you walk me through like what happened in your mind? Like like what what was the mindset when? How did you discover that it was inaccurate? How, how did you decide to go on air and do that? Well, it's very interesting because um, I never had any doubt or any hesitation in that moment that I would do the right thing. And I I guess I owe my parents a real duty for that because that's a great thing. When you've done that, then, you know, you always have that for the rest of your life. No matter what I did wrong, when the moment came and I was called upon to do the right thing, I didn't hesitate. So that's one of the things I have. Also, you know that you're going to do it. You're all in, right? When you do that, you don't get to be... 20%, 50%, 90%, 20%, 50%, 90%, not even 99%. You got to be all in. If you're going to do that, you got to mean it. And those things were not questions for me. They were automatic. There was absolutely no doubt in my mind, no matter how difficult it was, it was no matter how painful it was. And I just want to say too, something that's really important. My producer was with me every step of the way, 100%. We were with each other. And I think for us, because he and I have talked about it um, many times, we know we never even considered screwing each other over, right? And neither of us had a single moment of doubt throughout that entire torturous process, you know, of basically that I would describe as lying on the ground, taking the worst beating of your life in public with no ability to defend yourself, no ability to fight back, 
no ability to stand up for yourself, nothing, okay? You just have to lie there and take the beating because that was the decision that you made was in the best interests of everybody involved. And that was the right thing to do in that moment. And we both did that and we did it together. And neither of us even had a moment's doubt or hesitation to this day about what we did. We never tried to throw each other under the bus. We never had to worry about the facts or that our stories would match or that we'd say, you know, the same things. You know why, Dave? Because we both told the truth. Right. Because we were both honest. And I knew he would be honest and he knew I would be honest. And we never doubted each other. And to me, if you really want to understand like what that was about for us, it says it all, right? Because I don't know how many people have been through a situation like that and so public and can say that at the end. Um, I don't think the number is that many. And we know, as we say to each other many times over, you know, we can live with ourselves, right? Because we didn't even consider lying. We didn't even consider trying to cover up of course. or anything like that. Um, and I went on air and took responsibility for everyone and everything. Things I did, things I didn't do, things I have control over, things I don't have control over. It really didn't matter. I took responsibility for everything because what I couldn't do was say, I'm responsible for this, but not for that. Yeah. No. I mean, when you're, you know, basically when your ass is in the fire like that, the only way that you can get people to understand and know that you are sincere in what you're saying and what you're doing, the only way you can try to make it right is to be 100% in and to be committed. And, you know, the reality of that situation was we had one guy in our story, one of three, and I will say this, one of three. No matter what you read on the internet, there were three people we interviewed in that story, not one. And there were three people's story we told, not one. But when that one guy has gone, vanished, disappeared, and he's not standing up for himself, and two parts of his story are being questioned, what are you going to do? Yeah. You can't, you can't stand in his shoes and be the person to stand up for him. And at that point, other people become more important. The show is more important. You know, your colleagues are more important. The network is more important. So that's what we did. We made a decision. And in fact, after, you know, hours of, um, after hours of <laughs> torture, the night before I went and made that uh, on-air apology, I looked at Max and I said, oh, my God, I really hope I don't cry. And he said to me, oh, oh no, oh, no. You are not going to cry, okay? Because this is not about you. Mm. You are absolutely not even going to think about crying because this is about the show and this is about 60 Minutes. This is about CBS News. This is not about you or me or anything that we're going through. And I knew that was true. I said, I know, I know, don't worry. And you know what? That was all I thought about and that's what got me through it. And if you, you know, Anyone can go back and look at it. Interestingly, you can't find the story we did because if, <laughs> if you watched it, you might see that 90% of what was written about it was not true, but you can easily find my apology. And in that, you can go through that and you will see that I did not cry. And I maintained my composure because of that. And that was very, very helpful to me. And sometime later, I did see... Um, uh, a psychiatrist, and uh, he looked at me and he said, the greatest sign of mental 
health and strength is the ability to put your true nature aside for the greater good. And that's what you did. Because my true nature, believe me, is to fight and fight back and stand up for myself. And that was not an option at the time because I deemed it not an option. It's really telling that you describe that as, as you know, sort of laying there and, and taking a public beating. And it's easy to say that, but you've actually laid there and taken a public beating and worse just two years before that apology. Was it really the same level of, of psychological stress? I mean, it, it sounds like, like both of those experiences were profoundly traumatic, but would you put them in the same category? Yes, I would put them in the same category. And it's funny. I mean, you know, I was going to, I was going to make a joke and say the difference is that I was wearing clothes in the one and not in the other. <laughs> That's pretty but dark, Laura. Some people would struggle with that and they would think, oh my God, she's making jokes about being gang raped. But, you know, that was the kind of uh, family that I was, that I grew up in. If you couldn't laugh at yourself, if you couldn't uh, see the humor in something, if you took yourself that seriously, then you pretty much just got a beating from my brothers and sisters, right? I mean, that wasn't how we grew up. Lots of love, but also lots of life lessons, right? And reality. The reason it's the same, I'll tell you, you know, actually in Egypt, I never had any doubt about the people that were doing that to me. And I don't mean all the people in the mob of the 200, 300 men that were raping me and beating me. I mean, of the people who instigated it and set the mob off. They knew what they were doing. And I knew, I know there are bad people in the world, right? I've looked some of them in the eyes. I've sat with some of them. And some of them, I've just seen the fruits of their labor, which are staggering. But there are many evil people that walk in, in different clothing, and are far less apparent, and that have self-serving agendas that are very deceptive and very dishonest. And I hate that. I hate when I don't know where I stand. I hate uh, when people pass themselves off as one thing. It doesn't mean that, okay, it's okay to say, well, I'm evil, I'm a bad person, so I'm just gonna go being a bad person and, and you can excuse me because I'm honest about who I am. I don't mean it in that sense, obviously. I mean, that would be facile, right? That's obviously not acceptable. I just mean that it's easier to face an enemy that's identified than one who's not. And, um, you know, when you, when you go through something like that, there's, um, it's, it's very difficult because injustice and dishonesty are two things that have never sat well with me. Um, much of my choices in my life, many of the sacrifices that I've made have been because I believe in standing up against injustice and standing for the truth. And when people take things in the work that you've done and try to use them to discredit everything and to discredit who you are, I'll give you a good example. There was a journalist um, who went after me after that. And one of the things that he wrote was that I'd been groped on the streets in Egypt. Let's <sighs> rewrite history. So I was no longer gang raped. I was no longer beaten. I was no longer almost killed, lying in the dirt in Tahrir Square, right? None of that happened. No, he was going to rewrite that to my being groped. Why? So make his article, make me a less sympathetic figure? I don't know. For people who didn't like me, the fact that I even dared to do a story about Benghazi, you know, um, is that what he was doing? I don't know, because um, he's never been honest enough to say 
what he was really doing or why he did that. But I will tell you this, I know what the truth is. This gets down to uh, the other F word, uh, forgiveness. Uh, do you do you forgive people like that? Do you sort of hold a special black place in your heart for them? Like, like how do you deal with that level of, of just Sicilian. idiocy, for lack of a better word? Come on, I'm Sicilian, Dave. I have Sicilian. <laughs> and I was born and raised in Africa. What chance do I have? No, I'm just kidding. I mean... <laughs> You mean, let me check my kill list. Hold on. I got to see if there's any reduction in the numbers or if it's still just growing. No. Um, <laughs> do I? Well, I haven't forgiven that person yet. I can forgive people. You know, my mother used to say that life is the great level, right? Right. And people who know me have heard this from me before. Um, if you're around long enough, life will beat the shit out of all of us. And as you get older and more exhausted, you just don't care about a lot of stuff anymore. You just learn to let those things go. Now, that's not one that I have let go yet. And maybe because if you've ever been gang raped and beaten almost to death by a mob of several hundred men, you know, that one's going to take a little more time before I find forgiveness. And maybe also, too, I think you're not supposed to attach conditions to forgiveness, but justice mm -hmm. setting writing the injustice would get me a whole lot further towards forgiveness now that's not how it's supposed to work i know because i've interviewed people who have been capable of the true meaning of forgiveness right and i'm capable of it of course a thousand million times in my life i've let stuff go and forgive forgiven people but that's um obviously been easier for me and maybe the true spirit of forgiveness is why when it's really hard for you. If you can do it then, then you can truly say that you've forgiven, you know? So I don't want to be I don't want to be taking too much credit for being a forgiving individual because sometimes we forgive people when we just don't care anymore. Is that really forgiveness? <laughs> that is a profound question. Right? That's maybe real forgiveness. As you can tell, like I'm the hard road is always the one I'm I'm trying to choose. My mother used to say, well, can't you just make things easy for yourself and just say yes? Sail out the door, do whatever you want anyway, just say yes. And I was never a yes man. I couldn't do it. You just weren't wired that way. Well, so you've learned more lessons than most people about resilience. Because uh, the other thing that we haven't mentioned yet, right after uh, you were gang raped. Uh, you got breast cancer and were treated it. And right after that, you had the uh, on-air apology about the Benghazi uh, report. And just this huge three years of just just huge things one after another. And so you have your own study in resilience, but you've also interviewed thousands and thousands of people uh, from all walks of life and people who've been profoundly affected by war and all that. And and after you've been through your own resilience path and you've examined all these people uh, and you've you've gotten to know them and looked them in the eye, what have you learned about being a resilient human being? Like what came out of all that? You know, I'm resilient because I've been given so much. That's why I'm resilient, because I've had love in my life. I've had an, I have an enormous family. I have, you know, I mean, really four beautiful sisters. I have. Uh, you know, two brothers. I mean, my brothers are spectacular. One of my brothers is probably the most caustic person you could ever imagine in the universe. 
who made me the coolest 14 year old because I knew about bands like Sheep on Drugs, you know, that <laughs> I've never heard of. Every guy in the record store wanted to date me because they thought I was so cool. And it had nothing to do with me. It was my brother, you know. But also I grew up in this amazing country called South Africa where, I mean, I knew people like Nelson Mandela. I knew him as a journalist, not as a friend or in a personal way like that. I knew him because I was lucky enough to do a job that brought me face to face with him. And he was such an extraordinary person. But I knew people like the people that I met in the townships, you know, or the guys that I worked with who who gave me, I can't even begin to describe what it was like to be part of something where you actually saw people fight for freedom and against injustice and be part of something together. And I've been given opportunities. I mean, how did I end up in Hawaii with Bruno Mars, right? Or, you know, equally for me, living with Afghan soldiers on the front line or five years with Iraqi people in Baghdad being been given the opportunity to see and understand something firsthand or the unbelievable children that I have. I mean, I love my children more than I could ever describe to anyone. I think last night after, as they were falling asleep, I told them three times because um, I was so overwhelmed with how much I have that just the opportunity to hold that child in my arms and love them like that is such a gift and my children are healthy you know please god nothing happens to them but so do you see what i mean it's like how much have i been given everyone everyone struggles but not everyone is given that much in their life and i'm resilient because i am so gifted like that and i feel like i don't have a choice how could you squander all of that you know um and i i have and honestly, the people that I have encountered along the way, I mean, the young girl who's lost, just lost her entire family in a bombing in Baghdad, she's one of six children and she's the only one left. I, I mean, when you've been with people like that and you've held their hand and, you know, and they've cried in your arms before the interview and after the interview, and every time you've seen them afterwards, you know, when they've come by to say hello or sometimes not. I think that maybe resilience, if you're lucky, you're born with it too, right? Some of it might be inherent, and, and I think there's a good argument for that. And it sounds like the one word that describes a lot of this is, is just gratitude. Like, like you maintained a, a grateful perspective on your life, no matter how bad current circumstances were by just stepping back. Is that a good way of describing it? I was given the tools to do that from the time I was born into a family where my parents loved me. You know? Right. Some people don't get given that. And they're still resilient. Mm. And we blame them if they're not, you know. Well, you know, why can't you be like other people who have been born and raised in difficult circumstances or other people who've lost or other people who've suffered? Why can't you be resilient? Well, I was born with and what I was given along the way. And we're not all, we don't all react the same to circumstances that we're exposed to. I mean, I would see that day in and day out going into the townships in South Africa and some people would be moved and some people wouldn't. And I always thought, wow, how could you see that? How could you see that every day and not be driven like I am to make it to, to see that changed? You know, I, there was no way for me that I had a future in South Africa with, uh, without equality and freedom and justice for every South African. 
was not possible and never entertained that as a possibility. And yet people that I worked with, some could see that and, you know, it didn't change anything for them, right? They didn't feel the same way. So some of that is who we are and our capacity to engage with what we're given and what we see and, and what we're dealt with. And some of that is, you know, I think just sometimes some of us are luckier than others, right? And when you're lucky like that, that's when I feel a greater obligation to give back. You've talked in other interviews about the phases of recovering from trauma. And can you walk listeners through your own process of recovering from all three of these traumas? It sort of came all, all almost in one right after the other. How did you go about it? Did you ask for help? What happened internally? You know, no one's ever asked me that question. And I'm glad that you did because I always like to be taken somewhere I haven't been, you know? My response to each of those traumas was unique in the sense that I didn't have time to panic in the square, in Taria Square. Um, I, I still don't really understand why I fought so hard for my dignity and I fought the sexual assault so hard for so long in that square because I really wasted valuable time and energy when I should have been fighting for my life. You know, I've described it later as fighting for something that was long gone. My dignity, my self-respect, all of that stuff was long gone, okay? I mean, when you're naked like that and people are grabbing your breasts and they're inside your body, you know, tearing at your insides with their hands, there's no dignity left, mm -hmm. okay? You're the only one who's naked in a square with thousands and thousands of people. There's no dignity. So why would I... I've curiously asked myself this in my mind over and over. Why would you fight that when you had no chance? I mean, I'd been raped so many times and I was still fighting that. That made no sense to me. And I'd always prided myself, you know, I mean, we talked about being being smart um, versus being reckless, right? So I, I know I, I'm, I'm a smart person in those situations. And that was not a smart decision. Okay, I'd never been in that situation before, but I'd been blown up. And I'd been shot at and I'd, you know, almost died in ambushes. And I'd been in extreme situations, maybe not that extreme. So that was one decision that I am curious about why I made that. And I had to consciously change that decision to one of survival. I had to accept that I had been um, completely and utterly humiliated in the most filthy way and uh, that it was still and that it had, it had not ended. And I could see no end in sight. That was really a, that was a hard thing to accept. And maybe it's because hope is so powerful, but I really had to accept that there was no end in sight and there was no light at the end of the tunnel, right? I wasn't getting out of it. That was one part. And then, and then I had to make a conscious choice to fight and to fight to the end. And I've said, I've said this and I'll say it because I really, it meant so much to me. I fought for a dignified death. So I fought for something, and I've, and I've always liked to fight for something. I'm comfortable fighting for something in my life, right? And yet when I got cancer, when I was diagnosed, that was extremely difficult because I had, I had very little mental capacity and residual to, to call on to stop the panic. I was in a free fall panic when I got that diagnosis, and I – had an image of myself falling from a building. I, I covered a story many years ago with a young 18-year-old black girl in South Africa who was around eight months pregnant and threw herself off a building. 
And on her way down, she'd hit the building and the windows that were open and there were pieces of her on the ground. And uh, I remember being there with her, with the medics trying to save her, but she was, she was dead. And they had to do that before they could certify her dead. And I watched her belly with this child in it going up and down while they were trying to do CPR. And, and I, I remember feeling like that, like I imagined that girl had felt when I was there. And I was a young journalist when I did that story. And I felt like I was hitting the building and I was hitting the windows and pieces of me were flying off. And I was falling and falling and falling. And I was reaching for things to hold on to to stop that terrible panic. And I got nothing. And maybe because I had no idea if I was going to survive. Although my doctor, the fabulous and wonderful Brendan Burke, you know, who had made that call himself, who said I wanted to be the one. He delivered both of my babies. Mm. And my babies were one and two when he made that phone call. And he said, Lara, you know, I want to tell you, you have cancer. And I'm, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this. But I, he said that, you know, I, I can't tell you what stage you're at. I can't tell you any details, but I can tell you that it's treatable. It took a while for me to be able to respond to that. And after I'd had the surgery and I still was facing radiation, which was, I don't know, psychologically one of the worst things for me to try to think about, I just came unglued. I was, uh, I was with my sister who flew out from South Africa for my surgery and she was going home and she wanted to get some things for her family. And we had an argument in a shoe store in Washington, D.C., and that was the last straw for me. I just ran out into the traffic. And I i don't know if I was hoping. I wouldn't say I was hoping I was hit by a car, but I just didn't care. So that was the first time, you know, I ever um, saw a psychiatrist and it didn't last long. It was, not, you know, just a sort of uncomfortable experience for me. And uh, I gave up pretty quickly. And then the other one, well, that was just, you know, an extended form of torture. And in a way, because the injustice of it you know, having to live with so much written and said about it that wasn't true. That one is like an open wound in a, in a sense, even though, you know, everyone's moved on and, and, uh, and I have too in lots of respects, but the injustice of that one and the dis, you know, maybe more than the injustice, the dishonesty of it, the fact that people um, can use tiny details, which are really kind of meaningless, actually, when you look at them in the grand scheme of the story itself. And they can just cast enough doubt on it to have uh, to have everyone baying for your blood. Um, then that is that's frustrating because it's not it, the dishonesty of it is um, absolute. You, you know they did that to obscure all the very powerful things in our reporting, and it worked. And I learned a, a very hard lesson from that. You know, but it did make me a better journalist because now I am very. I am very, very, very cautious. Although I was always cautious, I had a healthy degree of, you know, of cautiousness and in my work. Now, um, extra cautious. And given, you know, given the 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 age that we live in, the I call it the age of information warfare as opposed to media. Yeah. Um, that's a, you know, that's a necessary survival technique. So, um, so it's good that I learned that at that point. So you you had a, a brief experience with a psychiatrist, not after uh, Egypt, but after your breast cancer, and it it wasn't Egypt. It, it wasn't particularly uh, fruitful for you. Do you do you rely on friends? Do you have a strong spiritual practice, meditation? Like where do you go for healing? 
I get a lot from the people around me, obviously, you know, from my husband, from his strength and understanding, you know, from my family and, and from my friends. But honestly, you know, I'm just not one of those people that reaches out that much. Maybe because my, you know, I learned sort of from an early age that you have to stand on your own two feet. I take responsibility for myself. I've always paid my own way. Honestly, I'm a girl. You can't imagine all the things that I was offered as a young girl growing up. I turned down Lamborghinis, you know, all kinds of stuff. I mean, I was never enticed by any of that. I mostly paid my own way, even in relationships as a young girl. I would pay for my own meals, and most of the time, I paid, you know, for my boyfriend's meals if um, necessary. I made loans to my brothers and sisters when I was much younger than them because I worked from an early age. And so, and I lived in New York City when I was 18 years old. In 1989, before the internet, before cell phones, before anything, I learned what it was, what it meant to be alone in the world. So I'm not saying I do it all myself and all on my own. No, of course not, because the strength I get is from the love of the people around me and the things I learn from people. Every step along the way in my life, I've learned something from someone, and I remember those lessons. None perhaps more so than my mother. I think it's maybe it's summed up in her one of her favorite sayings, which was love many, trust few and always paddle your own canoe. And and that's probably it. Are you happy today? Am I happy today? Yes, I am very happy. I think since um, I probably have I probably on any day since my children were born would never honestly tell you that I'm unhappy. And probably because I realize that there's no greater happiness for me in my life than those children. And so no matter how much pain I may have, no matter how much sadness I may have, or how difficult things are at a certain moment, everything pales in comparison. As you get older, you know, you realize that happiness is never absolute and it's not perfect. And it doesn't mean that everything in your life is exactly how you want it, right? It doesn't mean you're not struggling. I mean, I'm going to carry the pain of my mother's death till the day I die. I've made peace with it. I accept it. But there'll never be a me where I don't have some pain and some sadness or some longing, right? I'm never going to be completely whole again. That's just the way it is. But I am lucky enough that the thing that matters to me more than anything else is intact. And as long as that's intact, I will tell you I'm happy till the day I die. You come across when I first met you, um, you're, you're definitely tough. Uh, you, you definitely don't back down. Uh, but you're also incredibly playful and, and you have a good time. Like it, it's kind of there in your energy. How important is that that playful nature uh, to you in, in your resilience or just even in your career? Like how much does playfulness matter to you? It's a big part of it. I don't think you can underestimate it. You know, to me, it's symbolic of the fact that I don't take myself too seriously. I mean, I life can be a very serious thing and work can be a very serious thing. What I do, how I do it, I take that very seriously. But, you know... Taking yourself seriously to me is about um, is about ego. If you lose your sense of humor, you know, and you can't laugh at yourself, then you really make life difficult for yourself. You're boxing yourself into a corner. 
how much easier would everything be if you could just see the funny side in it, right? I will tell you, this is how deeply it goes in both my nature and my family. When my sister flew out uh, from South Africa after I was, um, after Egypt. So there I am, we're standing in my kitchen. It's a few days afterwards. Well, I went to hospital first and then I went home. And um, my sister had this running joke with me throughout my career because in Angola, I got food poisoning many years ago in the, in the war there. And I collapsed unconscious on the stairs of the hotel and I had to be taken to a, a clinic in Angola. And so my sister would say to me, you know, other people get food poisoning, they throw up. No, you, you collapse, you're unconscious, you're taken to a hospital in a war zone, right? A country which doesn't even have electricity. And uh, so she used to say, why are you so extreme? I have a car accident, I never just get hurt. I rode off the armored vehicle and I ended up in hospital with concussion. So her joke was always, why do you have to be so extreme? So there we are in my kitchen and she's like, seriously, gang raped, not raped, right? You had to be gang raped, of course, <laughs> you gotta be extreme. And she's like, and not just, you know, five guys, not just 10 guys, no, you, it's gotta be 200, seriously? You know, and of course we started laughing, right? Because that was part of our joke. And I thought, oh my God, I mean, could people imagine that, you know, less than a week after this, after I almost died, I'm standing in my kitchen and my sister's making jokes about this, you know, or two weeks later when my husband's like badgering me for sex and I'm like, seriously, you know, I mean, <laughs> not even get me a free pass for two weeks. <laughs> and we started laughing, right? I mean, you, so like, I, I think humor is like every, you feel better. They say laughter is good for the soul. I know that um, I feel better when I can laugh about something. I think it's a, and, and in fact, it's the thing that the people who know me best always um, shake their heads when they read something about me, you know, because the truth is that this person, this is really uh, me. I mean, I pull out my makeup bag in the middle of a 60 Minutes interview, and it says the queen of fucking everything on it. <laughs> okay. You tell that to the head of the Air Force. So someone like, I mean, sometimes people are really shocked. And often people will say to me, oh, you're a lot more fun than you seem to be on television. I'm like, what do you think? They're going to let me loose on the evening news? I mean, that's not going to happen, right? Uh, that is awesome. So that 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 definitely matches what I saw just when we first met. And uh, you know, I've seen you on the air, but I hadn't seen you in person. But you you appear to live your life that way, which is which is awesome. And and like you're saying, is, is probably a part of your resilience uh, is coming from that humor. What's coming up next for you? I mean, you, you've had a fantastic career, but you have children and you're spending some more time on stages. You know, you've moved to Texas. Uh, what what does life look like for you in your career five or 10 years from now? Well, you know, I just, I have to say one thing that occurred to me last night for the first time. I was like, oh my God, have I really been going around the world telling people that women can have everything? They can have children and they can have the career. And I keep saying to myself, what the hell was I thinking? Because I thought it was hard when I was pregnant dealing with that. I mean, I was in the mountains of Afghanistan with the 101st Airborne Division when I was eight and a half months pregnant, right? Wow. And I was four and a half months pregnant with the Marines in Helmand when they were fighting to take that back from the Taliban. So 
I thought those things were difficult. Okay, then I thought maternity leave was difficult because I was fat and grumpy and psychotic, you know, with no idea who this person was. And then I thought, you know, leaving my babies to go off and, and travel for work was hard. There'd be many things along the way that I thought were challenging, but I'm not sure that I've ever encountered anything like having children who can look at you in the face and say, mom, I just didn't feel your love today. I just don't feel like I get enough of your love anymore. And you're like, you have to stop for a second because you think, but every single waking moment that I have had today between being on my hands and knees, cleaning the kitchen floor, doing your laundry, uh, making, you know, and, and I mean, I, I'm not kidding. I live in the countryside. Okay. I don't just live in like, you know, a big city in Texas. I'm in the countryside. There is, there are barely any people around here in the, there is no service industry. People here don't, most of them don't have nannies. Right. And, and so the, the laundry and all of that stuff, the skirting boards, you know, I was on my hands and knees cleaning all the skirting boards today and scraping paint off the floor of the playroom and, you know, a 40 million other things. Um, doing all of that, keeping all of that together and still working and still be trying to be a great mom and still trying to be something that my husband can vaguely recognize as a wife and maintaining your relationships and your friendships and your whole person. I always love it when people say to me, you know, so when do you take time for yourself? And I'm like, are, are you an insane person? I, I think you're an insane person. And I know that I'm not alone. I know that every working mother, yeah. you know, and many more go through this. You know, you asked me about resilient and the first picture I got in my head was the back of an African woman with her baby tied to her back and another child, small child at her feet, no shoes on, standing in the hospital, Albert Latuli Teaching Hospital in South Africa. And she's there because her child has cancer. And she's walked from the township where she has no running water and she has an outside toilet. And no doubt she's had to ask for time off from work that day where she probably didn't get paid. And she's had to walk there to that hospital. And let me tell you, walk, carrying two children, one of whom had cancer. Okay. And she's going to walk back there afterwards. And she's going to nurse a sick child through the night. And she's probably going to get up before daylight and go off to her job where she earns probably half of minimum wage in any country in the universe, right? And she's going to do that day after day after day. And that is where I get my resilience from. And that is how I, that's what I think is the most important thing that I have learned is that I would never tell any girl you can't have it all. Of course you can. But the hardest thing that I've had to deal with is understanding that being a great mom even if you're the best mom that you could possibly humanly be for six weeks straight, the moment I have to tell my kids that I'm leaving in the morning, their heartbreak in that moment or pain or fear or whatever is real. And I don't care, you know, my husband will say, oh, they're playing you or whatever. They wake up in the night. My son won't sleep the night before if he knows I'm going away that I wasn't ever prepared for what any of that would mean to me. And it doesn't mean that every mother is going to feel the same way, you know, far from it. I realized that 
everyone reacts and deals with things in their own way and everybody has to walk their own path. I don't judge women who don't feel like that and I don't expect anyone to feel the same way as me. I just know that probably the greatest mistake I made in my entire life was underestimating what it would mean to me to be the best mother that I could be and how much that would consume in the process and how much strength that that would take and sanity that that would take and that I would give all of it willingly. Thank you for saying that. I think you just helped a lot of people understand what uh, what women go through uh, inside when they have kids. Oh, don't don't think for one single second that there haven't been people at my office scratching their heads since I had kids saying, what the hell is she doing? I get little things like, oh, she's not very organized <laughs> and she's not very efficient and things like that. And I know they're saying it about me and behind my back. And very occasionally, you know, it gets shoved in my face by my boss or someone like that. But uh, they don't understand. Uh, well, maybe they do understand. But the thing is, for me, I can have the best, most organized plan possible. And if that morning, you know, my child wakes up and they're, and they're sick and they're throwing up and they need their mother, it all goes out the window, you know? Kids are chaos generators. Uh, and that's because that's what kids do. <laughs> I love that. Kids are chaos generators. They really are chaos generators. My brother used to say that, you know, uh, being around me was like being handcuffed to a hurricane. And uh, <laughs> and sometimes that is correct. But now I've got two chaos generators inside the hurricane. Three, because my stepdaughter is my third. Wow. So you've, but you've still dealt with it, with that kind of characteristic toughness and resilience and some sort of deep well of energy that you tap into. My, my stepdaughter at 13 is having the end of your party at our house. And she said, oh, I think the boys, you know, in the class will listen if they have like, you know, any of their parents around. And I looked at her sharply and I said, the boys in your class will listen to me <laughs> if they'll listen to. And she said, yes, you're right. They'll listen to you. <laughs> that's that's the mom energy uh, that, that just comes up. <laughs> Laura, if. If someone came to you tomorrow and said, you know, based on everything that, that you've, you've seen and done and lived in your life, uh, I want your advice. Um, what are the three most important pieces of advice you have for me so I could just perform better at everything I do as a human being? Three most important things that you've ever learned. What would you say? There's only one truth. Doesn't matter what people tell you. Perception, action, what you do about something, what, how you feel about it how you perceive it, those are the things that are impacted by, you know, who we are, where we were born, whether we were rich or poor, or, you know, what, uh, what kind of environment we grew up in. Those things change, right? They're unique and individual. But the truth is absolute. There's only one truth, and thank God there's only one truth, because then it's the only thing that stands up to questioning, really. You know, everything else kind of breaks down. Opinion is opinion. You can try to pass it off as fact. We do it all the time. And it doesn't change the fact that it's not. It is still just opinion. So I would say, you know, because uh, with the Internet today, I don't think this has ever been more important. And um, it's not dependent on who's in power. 
you know, it's important regardless of who's in power. It's important because with the internet, you have created a, an instrument of information warfare that can reach every part of the globe. It can reach us any time of the day or night with absolute anonymity for the layperson. I know tech people can figure it all out and find out, you know, who's doing what, but for, for the average person, we don't know the difference between a bot and a human being, between a journalist and a paid propagandist, between a journalist and a political activist, you know, between an, a journalist and anyone else on the planet for that matter, right? So when people ask me, how do I know that something is true? How do I know that I can rely on something? There's only one truth. And someone's opinion of it or someone's accounting of it was, you know, that doesn't change the fact that only it only it either happened or it didn't happen. And it either happened this way or it didn't happen that way. And that guides that should guide all of us. And I've had times in my life where I've not reported on something, even though I knew it to be true, because other considerations came into play. You know, um, a British officer saying, I know I have no right to ask you this, but if you tell people that I was here, it's going to have significant consequences and impact. And in that one moment, you make a decision and toss the tape, right? But, um, but there is only one truth, and people should never forget that, because that's what, who I really work for. Yes, I, I work for whoever's paying my salary at the time and who's giving me the opportunity to do my job. But at the end of the day, I don't really work for them. I work to find the truth. And that's my greatest responsibility and my greatest challenge. So I would say that, number one. Number two, that thing we talked about, integrity is not something you pick up and set down whenever you feel like it. Integrity and consistency walk hand in hand with each other. I've always lived by that. I know that you can be a journalist without having integrity. There are plenty of them out there. But for me, the best ones, the ones that I respect the most and try to live up to are the ones who had real integrity in themselves and in their work. And to have real integrity, it's based on knowing who you are. If you don't know who you are, you can't begin to know what values you stand for and what you're prepared to do, to live up to them, right? I mean, those things don't exist without each other. Yes, in some form they do, but in an absolute sense, you have to know who you are, to know what you believe in and, and have the courage to stand up for those things and live by them consistently. So those things for me, I guess, are, um, are tied to each other. And the third thing that I would say is um, I meet people all the time who don't know how to live and don't know who they are if they're not a victim, you know? Um, and I, I learned one of the most powerful lessons of my life from a woman who was raped by two men in South Africa and survived despite the fact that they gutted her and slit her throat and tossed her in the middle of the bush on the side of a road, you know, outside of a, a, a city in South Africa in the middle of the night. And that woman overcame unimaginable odds and survived. I mean, when they tossed her out of the car, she found her stomach, she put her insides back in, she found her shirt and, and held her insides in with her shirt. She held her head, which pointed backwards because it slit her throat, 
and she pulled her head back the right way and she crawled in the bush with the stones and the thorns and everything, tearing the skin off her knees and her legs. And every now and then, you know, she'd lose control of her head and her eyes would be pointing backwards and her body would be pointing forward. And she crawled until she got to the road and she lay in the road because she had no strength. She'd lost so much blood at that point. And the second car that came stopped and a young veterinarian saved her by grabbing, sticking his hand into her throat wound and um, holding her vein and stopping the bleeding and calling for help. And that woman said at the trial of the two men who raped her, she said when they asked her how she was able to survive and, and heal, she said, they took so much from me that night. Why would I give them the rest of my life? And what I tell people, I remembered those words. I was a, in my early 20s, a young journalist in South Africa. I think um, I left newspapers and was in television then. And I always think of that, of what Alison said at her trial. And I think why that's so important is that she said, I'm not going to be a victim for the rest of my life. They took so much from me, right? So, But they don't deserve all of me. They don't get the rest of my life. In, in saying that, she's taking power and control back for herself. She can't have all of it. She can't erase what happened to her, but it's okay. You don't need to erase it because, you know, that's life. You don't get to erase your scars. But what she could do was she could take control of who she was going to be from that moment forward. And sometimes the moment is too overwhelming. We can't do it all. We can't do everything in that one moment. That's not what we're saying. We're saying every day, if you wake up and say, I'm not going to give them the rest of my life. I'm going to decide how much of me they get. You're giving yourself the opportunity to stand up and be in control. And you're not on that ground anymore where you're lying in the dirt and they're raping you. You're not. You're standing on your own feet. You are your own person and you're making your own decisions. Why would you give them that? Right? I mean, as I've said uh, to other people, they didn't deserve any of me, but they took it and I couldn't do anything about it. I can do something about the rest of my life. I can do something about how much of me I continue to give them. And I'm not going to give them any more than I have to. If I'm having a bad day or I'm having a bad moment and uh, something, you know, triggers a memory that I don't want and I can't deal with being touched in that moment or being sexual, intimate in that moment, it's okay because I'm going to get beyond it. I'm going to get past it and I'm going to take back a little more for me. You know what? I have all of me back. They don't get, yes, they got a part of the person I was and I, and I, I still remember and from time to time I still struggle. But honestly, they don't have very much of me anymore. And uh, in fact, they've given me something that they didn't mean to give me. They've given me the ability to reach other people who maybe haven't been given as much as I have. And I had, you know, I, I spoke about this at the Center for Family Justice Conference in uh, Dallas just recently. Afterwards, a man came up to me because one of the things I like to remind people is that it's not just women who are raped or sexually abused or sexually assaulted. And if you think it's hard as a woman to talk about it, try being a man, right? I mean, it doesn't take much to see that. For men, that burden is just as great as it is for women. And, um, and I said, I know there are men all over the world who are being forced to carry this 
dirty little secret in shame as if it's their fault. And it's not. It's not their fault. And um, a man came up to me. He held my hand and he looked in my eyes and he said, I'm one of those men you spoke about. Thank you. And that was it. You know? So um, not only did, did they not take everything from me that night, they gave me something. Um, that means a lot to me. And I'm very grateful for. And so, you know, those three things. There's only one truth. Integrity um, and resilience and consistency are based on knowing who you are. And uh, don't give them everything. Don't give them more than they deserve. Don't give them anything if you don't have to. Don't be a victim. Laura, thanks for the the profound work uh, you've done and continue to do in the world. And thanks for being a guest on Bulletproof Radio. Thank you, Dave. And thank you for what you do, by the way, because I learned a few things from listening to you. And I, when you get like a diet version of the Bulletproof Coffee, can you let me know so I can change my subscription? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.